My name is Joel Sedecase. I'm a Christian apologist, husband, and the father of four kiddos. In 2009, I left my job in the business world to teach high school Bible at Chicago Hope Academy. That decision would set me on a journey that would bring me first to seminary to study apologetics and earn my master's in philosophy of religion, then into local church ministry, where I became a youth pastor and eventually an interim lead pastor, and then to joining Crew and launching the Think Institute in 2019. Now, I'm on a mission to help fathers lead their families in defending the Christian message. I don't have all the answers, but I'm determined to go find them. And through this show, I'm reporting back to you, the Think Squad, what I discover. Welcome to the Think Podcast. Really quickly before we start, if you have an interest in the intersection of fatherhood and apologetics, as I do, as well as philosophy, theology, and many, many leather-bound books, I want to let you know about our online community, the Think Squad group on Facebook. There, you can join hundreds of other Christ followers also on the same journey. We trade apologetic stories and strategies, discuss philosophical and theological questions. It's like a huge late-night bull session in your favorite cigar lounge, and it's actually led to some real-life hangouts as well. So check it out, the Think Squad Facebook group. So just so everybody's aware, this is one of our semi-regular AMAs with Joel, uh, a case of uh, Think Institute website uh yep dot institute yeah the think dot institute is my website there we go the think dot institute <laughs> i put it on the category there um but yeah so um uh he's a really great guy um uh, we're thankful for him to give us his time but if you have questions that you don't want to ask uh with voice and with your mouth then go ahead and click uh, type them in AMA questions. If you want to talk, you can use AMA discussions. Uh, but yeah, so let's see if we have any typed out questions. If not, then we're just going to start inviting people up to talk. But, uh, so basically, there's a little queue, and we're, if uh, we don't have any good questions, we're just going to take callers. So. And Ellipsis, is it all right if I record tonight? No, oh, yeah, no worries. Oh, by the way, yeah, he's going to be recording. So if uh, you don't mind, if you don't want to be recorded, then you may leave. But yeah, anyways, so uh, we're going to go in order. Fix Wi-Fi. You're coming on up. It's your question. Moving on in five, four, three. Two one. All right, Carson. Uh, what's your question? Hello. Hello. Hey, Carson. Hey, dude. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing all right. Good. Um, my question is for you: Is that I don't know a lot about the Think Institute or or your own beliefs, but are you a Calvinist? Yes, I am. Well, okay. In saying that, it's always very important to define what one means by Calvinist. Um, so when you say Calvinist, what do you mean? Um, mainly the five points. Like the five, the five points of Calvinism, the, uh, the tulip or the doctrines of grace? 
the tulip. Yep. Uh, yes, sir. I, I affirm those. Okay. Why, why is that according to the doctrine of Christ? Why is that according to the doctrine? Okay. Yeah. Fair question. So I was, um, I still remember the moment when I kind of officially became a Calvinist. I was in seminary and, um, it was actually under the teaching of a very Arminian professor. I won't mention his name, but he's a guy who used to teach at Trinity. Uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School was my seminary. Uh, he no longer teaches there, but he was very much an Arminian, very much a Molinist, not a Calvinist. And it was under his teaching that I started to realize that what he was, what he was um, putting forward was not what the Bible teaches. And, um, and so I continued doing study and, and doing research. And, uh, this was about 2012, somewhere in there. Um, so the, there was this big movement at the time called the Young Restless Reform Movement. A lot of guys were converting to Catholicism and discovering what John Piper calls big God theology. But I was, um, I, 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 that wasn't the moment for me. The moment for me was I was talking with my wife. And uh, at the time we had a couple young kids. I think we just put them to bed, put them to bed. And I'm talking to Elisa and, um, I said, we, you know, we like to talk about spiritual things and the theological things late at night. And I said, uh, you know, a lot of people believe this. I don't remember exactly what I said, Carson, but I go, a lot of people believe this, but you know, we Calvinists, we believe this and that. And she looks at me, she stops and she goes, you just said we Calvinists. I said, oh yeah, I, I guess I did. And I kind of realized at that moment that I had become a Calvinist already. And uh, so that was the first time I voiced it out loud. And I've done a lot of self-reflection th since then. And I've gone through the proverbial cage stage, which every Calvinist goes through. And that is the moment, that time in your life when you've discovered Calvinism, the five points, and you get so zealous for them that they're all you want to talk about. And you are no good to anybody. And you really should just be locked in a cage. And that, they call that the cage stage Calvinist. Um, but I, Lord willing, uh, by God's grace, I've come out of that cage. And, uh, and now I can say that I affirm the five points, which are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, although I prefer something more like particular atonement or definite atonement or definite redemption, um, irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints. And the reason why I think those are in accordance with the teaching of Christ is when you look at the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the, the work that Jesus did, and then you look at the, the prophecies that were made about Jesus. And then you look at the way the apostles interpreted Jesus's words and his work in their epistles. My best understanding, Carson, is that those, each of those five points, what we call the doctrines of grace, the five points of, of, um, of Calvinism, the T-U-L-I-P, the tulip, match up each of those matches up with what the, what the Lord and then what the apostles did, said, and taught. And, um, I'm happy to go into that more in greater detail if you want, but, but yeah, I believe that it's, it's a thoroughly Christian way of looking at salvation and God's relationship to believers and unbelievers. Okay. Um, I'm just going to ask about one point because I'm like on the edge of 
through the rest of the four points. Okay. But there's just one point that I just, I don't, I don't think I can believe, and that is the unconditional election. Oh. I, I, remember, I remember reading that whosoever believeth in him shall not, shall not, um, shall not die, but have everlasting life. But yes. Why is, why is unconditional election true? Okay. Um, when, when you think of unconditional election, what comes to your mind? How do you understand that doctrine? From what I understand is that a few people were foreordained to be saved from the beginning, and that's who... And that, those are the only people that are ever going to be saved. Okay. And you don't believe that or you can't believe that? Uh, no, I, I don't believe that. Okay. So so then um, would you say you're more of like a universalist? Like, do you believe that everyone will be saved in the end? No, I believe that people who will come to Christ will be saved. Okay. So then you and I have that in common. We believe, we you and I would say we both believe that everyone who comes to Christ will be saved. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And are they saved? When someone is saved, are they saved, according to your beliefs, Carson, on the virtue of something that they have done or something that they are? Or are they saved completely by the work of Jesus Christ? They're saved by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. 100%? 100%? Or is there anything that we bring to the table? There's, we have to believe it. Sure. Um, yes, we have to believe. I, I agree with you on that. Do we do we add any works to salvation? Do we? Is, in other words, what I'm wondering is: is there is there a condition that God sees in us before He decides to save us? Is there a condition? Mm-hmm. Is there anything in... Yeah, I don't think so either. But, you know, if there's no condition, that that means it's unconditional. Correct? Right. So, wait, let's define... What, what, what is the definition of condition? Okay, so a condition is um, a stipulation that has to be met... In order, let me, let me make sure I can get a good definition of it here. Let's, let's see, um, uh, while, while I'm looking this up, um, here we go. Okay. So when we're talking about unconditional, uh, or when we're talking about a condition, sorry, I'm pulling up Ligonier's website just because I want to, I want to get a really good, okay. Okay, so here's what, uh, so Ligonier is a great, great, great ministry, um, started by R.C. Sproul back in, um, I don't know, 1971. Here's what he says. He says, unconditional election is another term that I think can be a bit misleading, so I prefer to use the term sovereign election. If God chooses sovereignly to bestow his grace on some sinners and withhold his grace from other sinners, is there any violation of justice in this? Do those who do not receive this gift receive something that they do not deserve? Of course not. If God allows these sinners to perish, is he treating them unjustly? Of course not. One group receives grace, the other receives justice. No one receives injustice. Paul anticipates this protest. Quote, is there 
injustice on God's part, end quote, Romans 9.14a. He answers it with the most emphatic response he can muster. I prefer the the translation, God forbid. Yeah, Paul says something like meganoite in the original Greek, which means it's the strongest possible way of saying no. So, transitioning off of Ligonier's website and to me now, um, a condition, the way I would understand it would be something in ourselves, or something that we are or do that causes God to choose you or me instead of somebody else. In other words, God is finding his rationale for choosing someone to be saved in that person even if it's just 1% in that person, there's something about that person that makes God choose Carson and not Carson's next door neighbor. And, you know, um, the Bible militates against this. Um, salvation is all of grace, as Charles Spurgeon used to like to say. Um, so Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 it might be a passage that you know very well, but it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is 100% of grace. It's all God's grace. And grace is a gift. It's fully a gift. You don't earn a gift. If, if you earned a gift, it'd be wages. The Bible's clear of the wages that we deserve. The wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now just to bring it back, Carson, to John 3.16, which you said earlier, you mentioned whosoever believes. Um, I'm going I'm to do my best to read that in the original Greek. Here's what it says. In this, for in this way, God loved the world such that he gave his one-of-a-kind son in order that all the believing ones in him, all the ones believing in him, will uh, may not perish, rather may have life eternal, life everlasting. So what what um what it's saying is exactly what you said and what I agree with, which is that all the ones believing in him will come. Now that that group of of believing ones is defined by the ones that God has chosen. That's why the Bible talks about um, God's elect. Um, that's why Jesus said, uh, no one can come to the Father except, uh, sorry, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Let me get that verse, John six forty four. It says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, when the one, one more quotation for you, when Gabriel was talking to, I want to say Joseph, uh, he said, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So who are his people? Um, everyone who believes in him and, and who will believe in him? Those that the father draws God, God knows exactly who will be saved and and he saves every single person that Jesus was sent to save. Um, there is nothing good in us, nothing that we've done, nothing that we bring to the table that makes God save us, that, that obligates God to save us, other than the fact that Jesus died for us and, and God chose us. So when we talk about unconditional election, we just mean that God is sovereign in 
whom he chooses. No, as R.C. Sproul put it, no one receives any injustice from God. Does that make sense? I can see it, but I have, I'm recalling a few verses like, for many are called, but few are chosen. Yeah. And like, and the grace of God has appeared to all men in Titus 2.11. Yeah. And I'm also recalling the part in 1 Corinthians 9 where he says, know that ye that run the race run all, but yet one receives the prize. Yeah. And I'm thinking that it's more towards that the grace has appeared to all men, that the option has, hmm. that those who believe will be saved. Yeah. Well, and, and that's true. The question is, is there something in the person that, that causes God to save them? And if, and based on what you said earlier, and, and, and again, I agree with you, I, I think we both have to stand with Jesus here. We have to stand with Jesus and, and, and with the apostle Paul, where it says salvation is by grace through faith. By grace, you have been saved, not by anything in us. Um, so it's, you know, so what you said is correct. Many are called. And every time I get on Discord on, you know, every other Thursday night, I, I try to preach the gospel. I talk about how Jesus died for sinners like us, was buried and rose again. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord, that everyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Every time we do that, Carson, we are calling people. We are calling them to Jesus, but only those who believe will be saved. Do you agree with that? Mm-hmm. And you agree that salvation is all of grace. There's nothing in ourselves that saves us. It's only Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you agree that, um, that God is totally sovereign over everything that happens. I mean, isn't okay. So, are you being sovereign as in like a fatalist point of view? Mm-mm. No, fatalism says that fate is in control. Um, sovereignty says that God is in control. I don't really know about that. No, that that's fair. I know, I know that God is sovereign. Mm. I, don't know if, I, I don't know if God gives us the option. Yeah, well, there's only two options. Either God is in total control or we are. If God depends on us for anything then he is not in total control and he has surrendered his lordship to us. So it's something to think about, Carson, something maybe we should, it, it sounds like there's, there's probably a few other issues we could talk about, but um, for the time being, you asked me why I think Tulip is biblical. Hopefully I've done at least a good job of explaining my own point of view. Uh, maybe we can talk again about it another time. Would that be all right? Yeah, that would be all right. Okay. Thanks for your question, Carson. So thanks, man, for, for answering it. And my, my pleasure. And no worries, Carson. Thank you so much. Thank okay. Um, let's go with bro. What? Come on up, bro. What? Ask your question. All right. So after listening to that, you got me really freaking out. I'm just, I'm only 15. So like, and, and I'm just still like trying to figure out how I can connect closer with God and stuff like that. I'm personally Baptist. Okay. And, but. I'm just like really freaking out. Like I didn't, I'm kind of new to like, like uh Christian, like I guess Christian politics. I don't know what the correct term would be, but I'm searching up some of these terms and you got me freaking out. Like 
even though I'm trying to connect closer to God, is my fate already predetermined? Am I already, no matter what, going to hell, no matter what I do? Because it's, I'm just like freaking out. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Um, well, bro, what, man, I appreciate your question. Yeah, let me change my username. Uh. <laughs> that's cool. I like bro. What? That's, that's cool. Um, so, so this is, th- these are good questions. Um, you said that, uh, you're, you're kind of new. Oh, hey, Noah. Okay. So I say you, ch- you changed your, <laughs> changed your name to Noah. Cool. So, so, all right. Um, you know what? Noah, your name reminds me of the story in the Bible, the story from history of Noah of and the ark. I'm sure you've probably heard that story before, yes, right? My grandparents love to use it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Very cool. Um, Noah, let me ask you a question. When, when Noah went on the ark, and you can read his story in Genesis uh, six through nine, basically. Um, when Noah went on the ark, maybe it's, maybe it's nine through 11. Um, and he was on that ark as the storm was coming down. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there were ever times when he got scared? Of course. Probably, right? He's human, like you and me. Now, we know the answer to this question that he didn't know at the time. Did he need to be scared? No, because he had God on his side. Correct. And as long as he was within that ark, he didn't have a thing to fear, correct? Exactly. Right. Now, that ark, according to to um, to the Bible, uh, that ark was um, was like a type of Christ, and I don't mean that that it was like another Christ. It's a it's a term that means symbolism. It, it's symbolism. Exactly right. It points forward to Jesus. So. Um, just like Noah was spared destruction because he was in the ark, the ark kept him safe. In the same way, Jesus Christ keeps his people safe. So Noah, one thing we can, whenever the Bible talks about God's sovereignty, it is always to comfort his people, not to cause them to freak out that they might not be chosen. So, while theologians, people, you know, Bible scholars and, and different people might have different ways of thinking about these things. When, when Jesus says, um, no one can snatch my people out of my hand, that is a source of great comfort. You think about Psalm 23 when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, shepherd, I shall not want. I lack for nothing because the Lord is my shepherd. Now, a sheep on its own, out in the middle of a, a valley, you know, in that Psalm, Psalm 23, it talks about, it says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. A sheep walking through a valley as the sun is going down by itself would have a lot to fear, correct? There's wolves, there's predators, there's uh, bandits, there's any number of, of um, threats. But if the shepherd is with him, That sheep has nothing to fear, just like Noah had nothing to fear on the ark. Why? Not because the sheep is powerful, but because he trusts the shepherd. So Noah, the only thing that you need to fear, according to the Bible, is God. You don't need to fear your own weakness. You don't need to fear your sin. You don't need to fear the world. You only need to fear God. And the Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Now, what does it mean to fear God? For an unbeliever, the fear is this. 
I'm a sinner. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So I just cited to you Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. For the unbeliever, the unbeliever needs to fear the judgment of God and to turn to Jesus and repent and trust in, in Christ Jesus. But Jesus himself says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There is there is no escape clause. There is no doubt. There is no uncertainty. All who the Father draws will come to Jesus, and Jesus will raise that person up on the last day. Now, that's talking about the resurrection. That's talking about entering into the new heavens and the new earth. It's talking about an eternal life with Jesus. So, the only question that I really want to ask you, Noah, is this. I'm not asking you to have all of your theology or your Christian politics or anything else worked out. All I want to know is this. Who is Jesus to you? It's really hard. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know that I'm, I might be able to answer the question yet. I really haven't like found like for me. I know him as the person who kept my family together. Like. Hmm. Divorce like runs very much, and so my family, my mother's parents are divorced, my father's parents are divorced. But my dad told me that God was the person who kept him from uh, getting a divorce. It was at a point where my parents were like, my mother was just like, "Why are you still here?" and stuff like that. And I just thank him for keeping my family together because. I, a lot of my friends have very rough childhoods. Wow. And I, I, I need to learn to be more grateful and stuff like that because it's getting off topic, but yeah. it's just, he, I know him as just like he, the person who keeps my family and my life and like from falling apart. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful for, for what I have, but everyone goes through their own problems and stuff like that. It's not just because yeah. I have money to keep uh, well, food, a roof over my head and stuff like that, but it's... Could, Noah, could I, could I interrupt you for a second and ask you a question? Of course. So the Bible says that... The Bible says that when God created human beings, he originally made us upright, but we've followed after many schemes. It says that in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. What that means is this. Each and every one of us was created for the purpose of knowing God, for the purpose of glorifying God, serving God. And yet, each and every one of us has gone astray. We've been like sheep, according to Isaiah 53. It says, we've been like sheep who have gone astray. And more than that, we're also, the Bible says that we are like rebels. Um, the, the Bible says that we've disobeyed God. God is the sovereign king. And I'm so glad to hear what God did with your family. That is very, very encouraging to me, man. But if we search our heart of hearts, we understand that our deepest problem, according to the Bible, is not our family, even though our family is very close to us, but our own hearts. Um, according to, uh, I believe, uh, Jeremiah, it says that the heart is desperately wicked and sick. And so our problem, Noah, your problem, my problem, everyone's problem is that we need a new heart. If we do not have a new heart, we will live our entire life 
with a sinful heart. The Bible calls it a heart of stone. And it's a heart that rebels against God and sins against God. And the end result of a life lived in opposition to God is an eternity of God's wrath. The Bible talks about hell. So I hear in your original question, I hear the fear. I hear the, the questioning about hell. Am I damned? Am I going to go to hell? Noah, the Bible says that hell is very real. That's why I said earlier, we need to fear God. Jesus himself said, fear the one who can kill you and send you into hell. Don't fear man. They, all they can do is kill you. Kill the one who can send you into hell or fear the one who can send you into hell. The Bible is also abundantly clear of who Jesus is and why he came. The Bible says that Jesus came so that we would have life in him. The Bible talks about God as being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So, because our sin deserves God's wrath and deserves death, God had Jesus take that wrath upon himself, die on the cross, a brutal death, Noah, the death that you and I deserve. And he died for sinners, just as the scriptures said that he would. He was buried, and on the third day, he was raised back to life. Today, Jesus rules from heaven, and yes, he rules over your family. He rules over my family. But the decision that each and every one of us have to make is this. Will we repent of our sins, and to repent means to repudiate them, to re- to um, renounce them, you understand, to turn from them, to turn to Jesus and to receive Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to take him at his word, and to, to acknowledge that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead after he died for our sins. Now, that is a transfer of ownership uh, of your entire life from your ownership to Christ's ownership, to Jesus's ownership. All you're doing is you're believing what he said about himself and you're believing what God says about him. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Does that sound like something that you, you've done in your life, Noah? Or does it sound like something you might be ready to do right now? Uh, I've struggled with uh, a lot of things like, uh, I, I have ADHD and like, so, um, addiction runs easily and I'm very impulsive and that's something that else that makes me very scared about messing up in life and turning away from God because I'm afraid I might accidentally fall into sin, not by my own choice, but like by my impulsive ways. And Noah, I I hear that. I totally totally hear that. And I want you to, under, to know, I understand that, but the one who understands that even more is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. He understands that. And the Bible says that he is able to keep you. Every Everyone who is in him, who is being held by him, cannot be snatched away. And I hear you saying you're afraid that you might fall into sin involuntarily. But what you're saying is you're afraid you might get snatched out of his hand. No, what I want to challenge you with, what I want to, what I want to, um, maybe leave you with is this. Before you can get snatched away from God, you need to, you need to receive his offer of eternal life. Now, that's not something that I can do for you. It's not something that anyone can do for you. It's something that only Jesus can do for you. And so what I want to encourage you is if, is if you're troubled about a lot of things, if you feel heavy burdened by these fears, the Lord Jesus himself says, come to me, all you who are, um, heavy burdened and weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus says that his burden is easy and light. So, Noah, what I want to leave you with is this. Um, I would, I would encourage you 
right after you get off uh, of uh, of this this AMA, I would encourage you to go read the Gospel of John. I, I think you should just let Jesus speak for himself. I would encourage you to go read the Gospel of John and to pray and to ask God um, what he wants you to do. And if you feel the Holy Spirit calling you, I would say it might be time for you to repent of your sins and give your life to Jesus Christ. Or you might discover that you've already done that, Noah, and you just need reassurance. And you can ask God for that, and he'll give that to you as well. I can't um, diagnose your your spirit, you know, the way God can. I don't know where you're at with God, but I do know that there is peace that passes all understanding in Jesus. And I pray for myself for that all the time. So believe me, I know. But um, can I, maybe I'll just, um, I'll leave you with that. And um, and I can make you a promise as well. No, when I get off this call, when I get off this AMA, I'm going to pray for you as well. All right? All right. Okay. Good talking with you. Yeah. Thanks. Hey, thanks so much, Noah. Um, all right. So we have uh, uh, Filippo Fish. He wants to argue about, he wants to debate, maybe we can do a short little debate, sure. whether or not morality must come from God. Okay, so um, we'll invite Philip up. There we go. Go for it. Hiya, folks. How y'all doing? Hey, doing well. How you doing, Filippo Fish? Not bad. So, so what's my, up? My question is, I did, I... On the server, I debate with a lot of Christians, and I, in life, I know a lot of Christians. I did come from Catholic school, and I do know the Bible. I, I, one thing I keep hearing from them, which I disagree with, is that if you are not a Christian, then you have no morality whatsoever, and there's nothing holding you back from doing immoral things. I, I want to hear what your take is on that point. Hmm. not seem very sophisticated. But- <laughs> Sure. Well, yeah, there's a lot of things that we believe that don't seem very sophisticated to people who don't believe them. And believe me, that's a two-way street too. There's a lot of things that I hear from atheists that I'm like, well, that doesn't sound very sophisticated. But, you know, when you're in a worldview, um, whether it's an atheistic worldview or a Christian worldview, um, there are going to be a lot of things that you hold, a lot of positions that you hold, a lot of convictions that you have that are not going to make sense to someone who's who doesn't share those convictions. So, Maybe we can define our terms here, uh, Filippo Fish. What, um, when you say moral, what do you mean by that? Well, the, the typical thing people say is that if you're not, if you don't accept God into your heart, then there's nothing stopping you from raping and murdering someone or robbing them. And, you know, that's something that is said by, you know, pastors. It's been said by people my age. And sorry, I got my dog in the back. <laughs> I was wondering what that was. You got a, you got a good boy there. Yeah, good girl. she just had a bad experience at the dog park. So now she's all Oh, upset. poor girl. Uh, yeah, so, like, I don't buy that, obviously, because I've never wanted to murder anybody. Okay. Um, I never wanted to steal from anybody. And I don't, I sure as heck don't believe in any god. So, like, how do you how do you reconcile that point? Is that a point that you would make that you can only find morality through God? Well, again, it depends on on what you mean by moral. So, are there non Christians who don't go around murdering people? Yeah, obvious, more than not, sure. Um, but you know, hopefully, we can raise the bar a little higher than just I don't murder people, and that makes me moral. 
um, you know, from a Christian perspective, when we talk about morality, um, we're talking about holiness. We're talking about righteousness. So we're not just talking about, you know, this baseline requirement of, you know, don't murder someone, don't rape anybody, don't, um, you know, pillage. Uh, for, for the way we understand morality is, is we try to stand with Jesus Christ on this. We try, we, you know, we try to hold to his standard, um, which is absolute perfection. So you, you have to understand, Filippo Fish, when we're talking about morality, we're not just talking about these, these baseline moral requirements that we all need to hold to in order for society to work. We're talking about in your heart of hearts. Um, so for example, the, uh, what, what many people believe, and I'm one of them, is the greatest moral, what is this? Someone's got, I'm just turning off my car. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. No problem. Everybody. All good. So the the greatest moral teaching of all time can be found in Matthew. The so the Bible is divided up into sixty six different books, and um, one of those books is called Matthew. And in Matthew chapter five through seven, we have the greatest moral teaching of all time. Uh, this is what I believe. I I think it's objectively true. Um, and in in those passages. What we have is we have Jesus of Nazareth laying out a um, a definition of morality that so transcends anything that you or I are capable of um, accomplishing on our own that it's mind-boggling. So he goes, you've heard that it said, do not murder. Okay, good. So far, so good. But then he goes, but I tell you that if you hate your neighbor, you hate your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. Well, at this point, Filippo, you and I should be going, oh, <laughs> like if that's the standard, I've hated people. I've, I've thought hateful thoughts about people. Uh, maybe not that I haven't even articulated them, but I've certainly thought them. It's a, it's a knee jerk reaction sometimes. Um, and then Jesus goes, you've heard that it said, don't commit adultery. All right. Yeah. So far, so good. Fine. But then he goes, but I tell you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her in, in your heart. Now, again, this is where you and I go. Oh boy! <laughs> oh no! Like I've commit, I've committed that sin many countless times. Um, it, 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 when, when you say this, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but go ahead. When you say these things, yeah. when you say these things, it, it seems to me that these are you know manipulation techniques that mm. any con man will use. Oh really? To I, I I know. I mean, guilt is a powerful emotion, and if you, if you apply guilt to a human being for something that he cannot control himself to do, hmm. and you put enough pressure on him, he will find a way to 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 alleviate himself of the guilt. So you, you, this is a big one-two punch, right? The number one, feed him with the guilt with something that he cannot stop. Number two, give him this magical solution to this hmm. imaginary guilt. Which would be to state to you know, state to someone like yourself or a pastor or a priest or something that he believes in this, and then you know what? Submit uh, a tithe, you know, a certain <laughs> amount of money every year, ten percent. Right. Like well, sure. We live in a world of multiple yeah. marketing. We, got, we live in a world where Ken Copeland's exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, you know, I, I I can't see anything beyond the financial scam that it is. Okay, Filippo Fish, can I can I just can I, I want to just summarize what you just said just so I can make sure I understand and, and you and you hear what you said um, I started talking about um, I started talking about you know lust in the heart murder in the heart hatred and you immediately went to guilt 
you said um, manipulating people's guilt is a, is a con man's technique. I didn't say anything about guilt. You brought up guilt. And of course it did. Right, right. Because so I followed up what you were saying. Yeah. But we're real quick though, Filippo Fish. What you just expressed. Well, what what you what you just expressed is the human condition. We you you hit on something. Now you hit a you you were sort of an adversarial agreement. You were in adversarial agreement with Jesus because the fact is we are all guilty for these things. And one thing you might need to consider is that guilt. I, I disagree with that point. I, I oh. don't believe that there is any real guilt, like any. Factual guilt on the person. Oh, so you simply as a person, a person has provided the emotion of guilt to you. Oh, as a, as a listener. Well, that's yeah. so, Filippo Fish. That's interesting because so now we're now we're going to get into a worldview divide here because for me, okay. I don't define. Uh, hatred of my neighbor as a moral thing. I actually view that as immoral. So like, I'm, I stand with Jesus on that. So I go, I go, yeah, hatred actually is immoral. And the guilt that I feel over that is real because I am guilty of that immoral activity. I also view lusting after my neighbor's wife or someone I'm not married to. I view that as immoral. I actually do. Maybe you don't. Maybe you've got a different standard of morality, which we should probably get to. But for me, I look at these things and I go, yeah, that is immoral. You're right. I can I can totally see that standard. The the problem, and this is where the disconnect comes in, or the, the dissonance, is those can those actions are so universal that we do have this knee-jerk reaction to go, well, if they're normal or if they're um something I can't control, therefore they must be good. Well, no, I, as a Christian, I don't believe that. I don't believe that all my natural urges are necessarily good. If that's true, then you actually can't condemn murder because people do commit murder based on their urges. And it's like, if my, if my, real quick, if, if my, um, urges are what determine what's, what's good or bad, I'm in a lot of trouble because my urges tell me to do a lot of bad things. And now I don't, I no longer have a standard for good and bad. So before you rebut that, does that make sense? Do you at least see where I'm coming from? No, because it's a matter of degree, uh, and the nuance is lost when you say it that way. But more importantly, hmm. I have. Hold on, can you explain that? Can you explain that? That's not. Um, I'm not seeing that. I'll get to that. Well, real well, before we move on, though, that's that's an important point. I feel like I, I'd like you to explain that. I'll explain that by how I view the human mind compared to how you view. It seems that you view the human mind. Um, I, I view the mind as a tool. Right, a tool that was that has come about and evolved for whatever reason to allow us to simulate rea- simulate a, how reality can turn out for our own benefit. So, for example, the reason why you would lust after another woman is perhaps related to your reproductive urges, and you would simulate in your mind what it would be like to do that. Because you know, it was in the past, you know, our obligation genetically to, to pass on our genetics to the next line we see that as something we want to do it still is yeah with regards to hate right threat threat assessment is a very important thing about survival yeah where you hate someone who, who threatens you you hate someone who may take something from you i mean you hate someone who's threatening your position in a social environment we're complicated animals that need to survive in a very complicated society like the, the feeling of hate is useful hmm. so so in your mind then hatred Remember, hatred and lust are actually 
they're they're fine. They're, those are amoral activities. So then, why not? So then, murder would apply in that well, same they're category. Not activities, in my opinion, they're not activities. They're, well, they're thought processes. Okay, so we acted upon it and, and murdered someone. And these no, but what we have now, we should get into that though. And if you don't mind, because just because in the interest of time, I want to try to keep this going because we do need to probably wrap this up very soon. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to miss this. Um, Help me understand by what is your standard by which you judge hatred as moral and murder as immoral? I don't see hatred as immoral, first of all. But what is the standard I by see, which you judge that? Well, when thought becomes reality as standard, if you're, if you're providing harm to somebody, I mean, what is a sin to me is harming somebody in some way. Why is that? If, if I, let's say I called someone I hated, a really mean name, yeah. and he felt emotionally harmed by that. I would call that a sin. On the a sin? other hand, if I just picked up a rock why? and threw it in his head, he died. That would also be a sin. Why? Why is that? Why? Why is that? Why? Like I'm, I'm not seeing. It affects another. It, it, it affects another sovereign human being. So I, I agree. I agree with that. But you just um, espouse something like like a darwinian view of man that says we sort of arose through these uh maybe i misinterpreted you but it sounded like it's sort of a darwinian evolutionist kind of view that you know we are um the product of uh, our our minds are tools that evolved through time and chance acting on matter but how, where do you get sovereignty from that and and morality well, here's what I don't believe that the Darwinian view is prescriptive. I believe it is descriptive. I mean, it just basically says this is a state of nature. Right, but morality, again, in the interest of time, don't you see morality as being prescriptive? It's just prescriptive, as in, like, the Darwinian view just explains to us, like, what is, how this occurs, why are we the way that we are. Right. It helps us to better understand that. But it doesn't tell us that we must act in a survival of the fittest way, which a lot of people on exactly. this Discord actually talk about. Right. I don't believe that that's what it means we should do. Exactly. It means that that's how we think. That's, that's, Filippo Fish, that's exactly it. There is nothing in the Darwinist worldview that is that can possibly be prescriptive. Morality, by definition, is prescriptive. It's normative. That so so you've you would not go to Darwinian theory. You wouldn't go to evolutionary biology for something prescriptive. That's not the point of that of that study. No, you right? But but Filippo Fish to have a coherent organizational behavior would be to have a more useful yes. But but we're talking about we're talking about uh, psychology that is being done by uh, evolved fish. You know, by, by, um, by collocations of atoms that were assembled randomly over millions or billions of years. Um, so whatever those fish or those bags of protoplasm, however you want to view human beings, you said it was a tool that evolved for whatever purpose. Um, first of all, a tool can't evolve. A tool is by definition purposeful. So I, I don't like that analogy, but, um, I, I get what I you're mean, getting at. It's the, you know, the purpose comes after the thing evolves. I mean, the thing. Yeah, that's not a tool though. That's. Yeah, I mean, it is the, it is a tool in the end. Okay, We're so using it as a tool, We're using our minds as a tool, I'm using my fingers as a tool. Yeah, Filippo Fish, here, here's the thing. Here's here's the the uh, cognitive dissonance. I think you find yourself in, and we we really do have to move on. But um, you're trying you're trying to wedge in moral prescriptions into a universe that you believe is guided by random chance. You. Uh, you can't, philosophers have shown this, Hume showed this, you cannot get an is, you cannot get an ought from an is. You are, you are correct that neo-Darwinian, I'm not talking about any oughts. Well, morality, well then, well then now you've lost morality. 
That's what morality is. It's also a tool, right? Not, the, but the, it, the fact that I feel a certain way about this is also a tool for, yeah. for our organism as a society. Yeah, Filippo Fish, I don't know if you can see it, but you've just given up morality. I, I, we actually have to move on, but... No worries. Yeah, you get, oh, we can give you a part two if we can... Get yeah, maybe we can come back around. No worries. Uh, thank you so much, Filippo Fish. We have uh, Peter, Metal Peter Flynn on his way up to ask a question about... Um, Uh, what, uh, the concept of free will. All right, sorry about that. Lost track. All right. Thanks, Philip. You're invited up, Metal. Hello. Hello. Good, good. Glad to meet you. Glad to meet you. Okay. Yeah, likewise. So, so kind of to repeat the question that was stated by, uh, by Ellipse here, um, what does the Bible have to say in regards to the concepts of free will? Mm. Great question. Um, well, what do you mean by free will? We always have to define our terms. When you when you think of free will, what do you mean by it? I define free will as complete autonomy, meaning that your decisions are not guided by any other outside influences that don't come from the self. Okay. So, have you ever made a decision that was completely autonomous? A few that I can count off the top of my head in the last day. Yes. Okay. So, you were influenced by... Nothing. And that includes your biology, your environment, nothing. The only influence that I could probably think of was simply the fact of the act of knowing that I wanted to pursue the action in the first place. Yeah. Okay. So it's a long and complicated way to get here, but if, um, but a, a truly free decision, what, what we refer to as libertarian free will, um, and, and, and respectfully, Metal Peter Flynn, I'm going to, I'm going to push back on that. I'm going to say, again, respectfully, I don't think you've ever made a truly free decision in your life. The reason why I say that is not because I think that, um, you know, you're unique. I, I believe we human beings are a lot more affected by our environment than, than we realize. But more than that, each of us has a nature. We have a human nature. And now a truly libertarian free decision would be totally, um, totally non, non caused by, by anything, including one's nature. Now you did stipulate that you view free will as being, um, like, non-impacted by anything outside of the self. And, and that's, that's an interesting idea to think about, but it's that it's the self that really concerns us because the nature of what it means to be the self, what it means to be metal Peter Flynn or what it means to be Joel Sedeckes. That's very important because we are the product of nature and nurture. We didn't just emerge into this world from the void. We didn't just, you know, just, um, blink ourselves into existence. We, whether you believe in God or not, uh, you know, maybe let's say you're, uh, you're an evolutionist or something. You, if you're an evolutionist, you're actually in big trouble because you, all of your, your, um, attributes are the result of an unguided process of evolution. And the only thing you could say that your thinking was and your decision making was aimed at, if it could be said to be aimed at anything, would only be survival. Never truth, never goodness, never beauty, never anything else. Only survival. However much you might be deluded into thinking that it's based on anything else, that's all you get in the neo-Darwinian worldview. Now, as a Christian, I believe that we we make decisions based on what we want to do and so in that sense we do have 
real authentic responsibility and real agency. So I prefer the term agency. Um, Proverbs 16, nine says the heart of a man plans his way. We do plan. We do make decisions. The second part of that verse though says, but the Lord establishes his steps. So there's this, there's this, um, what would you call it? Uh, there's this compatible relationship between our actual agency and God's total sovereignty. And some have described it as if, um, as if we are like Hamlet and God is like Shakespeare. You know, if you could find a way to enter into the play Hamlet and you were to ask the Prince of Denmark, you know, Hamlet, hey, are you making decisions? He would go, yeah, of course I'm making decisions. Here I am. You know, I'm going to avenge my father. But then, you know, you exit the book again and you go, hey, Shakespeare, is anything in this book outside of your control? He'd go, no, of course not. I'm the author. So our relationship with God is something like that. God is the author of human history. We are like characters in a novel or like characters in a play. Now, before that starts sounding too fatalistic, this is where the analogy is going to break down. Because when we human beings create a novel or create a story or whatever, we can only do it with ink on paper. God is so transcendent, so much higher and so much greater above us that the stories that he creates have characters in them that actually have real personality, real um, self-interest, real agency. So that's just because God is so much higher than we are. So the Bible talks all the time about human agency. Um, John 17, John 7, 17 says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So there we've got authority. Jesus has authority. He, he must be obeyed. He ought to be obeyed. And yet we also have, um, we also have human agency. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I just explained that well enough. I need to go back and look at that verse, but, um, the, the, the point I'm trying to do my best to systematize what scripture says about this. Human agency is real. God is totally sovereign. And yet, Metal Peter Flynn, none of our decisions, not one of our decisions is, is going to emerge in an uncaused way such that it does not fit with our nature. Um, one, sorry, go ahead. I've been talking. Go ahead. Okay, okay. I have like a, I have, a, I have another question that sort of builds off of what you just said. Okay. It's kind of broken up into two parts. Okay, real quick, real quick. Let me, let me just, let me just say one more thing. Um, okay. if you don't mind. So, um, in, in scripture, Again, because you asked about the Bible. The Bible also says that our hearts are desperately wicked and sick. The Bible says that we have a heart of stone until God gives us a heart of flesh. So the thing that I really want to put before you and, and even challenge you with is this. Um, unless you have come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, then you are still dealing with a nature that is actually in opposition to God. The Bible calls it the mindset of the flesh, the mindset of, uh, of the, uh, a, a, a mere, it's like mere flesh, not spirit, mere, merely, uh, human, not divine. And so, um, the Bible says that the mindset of the flesh cannot please God. So Metal Peter Flynn, what I want to challenge you with is, have you ever been reconciled to God? Have you ever come to Jesus Christ humbly in repentance and received him as Savior and Lord, the Lord who died on the cross for your sins? If not, then according to Jesus, 
you are still in your sins. And, and he says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. One of the symptoms of being a slave to sin is believing that we have radical autonomy apart from God. So I'm just going to leave you with that. Um, that, that actually leads perfectly into my next question as well. Okay, this is going to have to be very, very quick. Yeah, I, I know. It, it's very, I'll make this very, very quick. So, so I, guess, I guess the last thought experiment I'll propose is, let's say, for example, I decide to do a very charitable act, like donate to charity. Okay. So, in this framework, God in sense is, would you agree that God is is acting through me, through my own actions, in my generous act by, by by donating to charity, and if that's the case, then is there a, is there a moment where God takes action for only your charitable and your righteous decisions, or does God take responsibility for all the actions that a human being has ever taken in their whole life, yeah. and include it? Yeah, great question. Great question. The relationship that God has to our actions, as I understand it, as I read the Bible, and you can read the Bible and come up with your own conclusion on this, um, which by the way, I highly encourage it because I only want to say what the Bible says. So, uh, Metal Peter Flynn, I, I truly hope that you will come to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord and will come to believe scripture, study scripture, and then maybe you can come back on another AMA and correct me if I get this wrong. But, um, the way that I understand God's God's uh, activity with us is God has a deeply, God is sovereignly in control of everything, but he is deeply involved personally, relationally with his people. So we Christians say all the time, and I'm sure Ellipsis would agree with this, anything good that we do is God. It's the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Any sin that we commit is our fleshly nature, sinful nature, rebelling against God. So in that sense, again, we have, we do have agency. We do have responsibility. I bear the responsibility for every sin that I commit. God gets the glory for everything good that I do in my life. That being said, the Bible is very clear that because we do have agency, we do have responsibility. Again, this is that compatible nature between God's sovereignty and my responsibility. God does also reward us. This is the grace of God. This is unbelievable, actually. God is going to reward his people on the last day, on the judgment day, if you will, stepping into eternity for the good that we do. And we might say, you know, Lord, I didn't, this was you working in me. And he goes, I know I'm, I'm rewarding you for the good that I did working in your life. And you go, well, I don't deserve this. And he's going to say, that's right. That's called grace. So God's grace is so unbelievably great that he not only saves us from our sins, but he also helps us to lead a holy life and then rewards us for leading that holy life. Now, you might say, well, what about the non-Christian? You know, the non-Christian who gives to charity. One thing you have to understand is that God is still the author of the story. It doesn't mean that God is interacting with with uh, with non-believers in the same way, but he's still the author of the story. A good story has villains and heroes in it. And one of the best things that a good author can do is to have the villain's plans get frustrated in spite of themselves so that the evil that they intend to do actually works out for good. The best example of this is Satan uh, entering into Judas so that Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus gets crucified, and that turns out to be the salvation of the world. So Satan has egg on his face at that point. And the Bible says that God held Satan and the, and his uh, evil minions up to mockery, open mockery, because their evil plan was turned around for good. So um, 
An unbeliever, uh, uh, someone, I call them an unbeliever, someone who disagrees, someone who doesn't follow Jesus Christ, if they give to charity, that is still a good act in the sense that it's good to give to charity. But, but it's, again, it's impossible for the mindset of the flesh to please God. So, only God can judge the motives of a person's heart when they give to charity. And according to scripture, according to the Bible, there is no one righteous. No one is righteous. That includes everyone. No one is excluded from that. So anyone who thinks that they are doing good apart from God, if they're rejecting God while they do it, it is impossible for that to be a truly righteous act. We cannot do righteous acts apart from God, not by God's standard, not by what he requires. Can God use that for good? Absolutely. Is it better to do good than to not do good? Of course. Of course. There is. There are degrees of punishment. Hitler is going to be judged you know, more harshly, more justly, I should say, than a person who, you know, just silently was, you know, a prig in his heart and just silently hated his neighbor without doing anything about it. You know, there are degrees of punishment, don't get me wrong, but um, but God is sovereign over all of it. And the greatest joy, the greatest victory, the greatest, you know, best end of the story comes when someone turns to Jesus Christ for their salvation and their will now is lined up with God's will for them. Well, okay, so while I do slightly agree to disagree on a, on very few points that I actually thought I was going to disagree on, okay. um, I do want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to, to do this AMA. I appreciate it very much. I don't want to take up any more of your time. Metal Flynn, uh, I appreciate that, man. Thank you very much for asking your question. Thank You're you, very welcome. Thank you, thank you Metal, Metal Peter. Um, come back next time. Um, we have a couple questions from text chat. Um, a question from Gratius. I have a question for Mr. Joel. If the if the historicity if the historicity of the Old Testament is validated, does that invalidate the New Testament by proxy? Hey. I'm sorry, I don't think I heard that right. Does it invalidate the New Testament? Yeah. So if the old the let's say the historicity of the Old Testament is found to just be like false. Oh. Uh, Oh, does that, and then, so there, does it, there, I mean, the Old Testament then being invalidated, does that invalidate the New Testament? I think that's his question. Okay, good question. Um, yeah, so much in the New Testament relies on the Old Testament. Sure. I, I mean, Jesus, for example, Jesus, Referred to the story of, of Jonah. And I mentioned Jonah because Jonah is one that people like to point to. Non, uh, people who don't hold the same convictions we do as Christians will point to the story of Jonah and they'll go, that story is absurd. A man can't get swallowed by a, a whale or a fish, you know? And actually the word Jesus used for it was katos, which is a sea monster. But Jesus referred to Jonah at least twice. He said, that um the men of Nineveh, which is the city uh the city in Assyria to which Jonah preached, the men of Nineveh will, will Nineveh will rise up on the last day and condemn the people of Jesus' generation because they repented when Jonah preached. But there's one greater than Jonah who's preaching to his generation, that's Jesus, and they his generation refused to repent. Why do I bring that up? Because Jesus treated the Old Testament, even the story of Jonah, as if it was authentic. As a matter of fact, Jesus even tied Jonah to his own coming resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the 
Katos, the fish, the whale, whatever, the sea monster, for three days. And in the same way, Jesus said that he would be in the belly of the earth for three days and then would rise. So, yeah, a lot is riding on the historicity of the Old Testament. This is why um, when I talk about, you know, as a, as a, um, a Christian apologist, I'm standing firmly on all 66 books. It's all inspired. It's all breathed out by God. It's all inerrant. It's all infallible. It can't have errors in it, which is, you know, that's exactly what you'd expect if God wrote us a book. Um, does that mean that there aren't parts that are hard to understand? No. Does that mean that there are still things that seem fantastical to us? No, of course not. This world's a crazy place. It's a fantastical place. Um, it's a surprising place. But over and over and over, history, the study of history, archaeology has corroborated the witness of the Old Testament. But even if there were some discrepancies between our current understanding of history and the Old Testament, my money is on the Old Testament every time because that is breathed out by God, Where whereas um, current his- historical consensus is not breathed out by God. I've just been grateful for the way that historical study has validated the Old Testament. So yes, the two do stand together. And I will say one more point. The New Testament helps us understand, just like the Old Testament helps us understand the New Testament, the New Testament has priority because Jesus has priority. So the New Testament does help us understand what the Old Testament means. Okay. Thank you so much for that one. Uh, another question from Paisus. Uh, where should Protestants start when reading to the theology side of Christianity, since there's so many options, so many doctrines and denominations? Okay, sorry, can you repeat that one more time? Um, I got uh, Jesus is just looking for like a um, intro, like theology, like oh, is for Protestants. Okay, uh, yes, the best. Okay. Uh, sorry, Ellipsis. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, no worries. Yeah. Um, the best book of Protestant theology is the Bible itself. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know that sounds snarky, but it's just, it's a fact. Um, it, it, for Protestants, I mean, we, that's kind of our thing. Sola Scriptura. We believe that the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are breathed out by God. And as such, they are profitable for teaching, reproof, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. What I just said to you is not my own invention. That's coming from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And um, so, so... That's what we believe. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. If you want good, solid theology, start with Scripture. Now, to help you understand Scripture, if you want like a systematic theology, uh, let me give you a good, basic book. It's called Bible Doctrine. I'm looking at it on my shelf right now. Bible Doctrine by Wayne Grudem. Bible Doctrine is the simplified version of Wayne Grudem's more in-depth, more robust, systematic theology. Is it perfect? No, it's not. That's why I say start with scripture. Because if you start with scripture, you can judge 
every other book of theology by scripture. Scripture is the standard. But Bible Doctrine by Wayne Grudem is a great place to start. Another book that I highly recommend is called Concise Theology by J.I. Packer. And that's a short book. I mean, the name says it all, Concise Theology. Uh, I've got that one as well. And uh, it's very good. Another thing that I might recommend is get yourself a catechism. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism can be a great one. I'm not a Presbyterian, um, so there's going to be things in there I disagree with. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith is another excellent document. I'm going to disagree with some of the things in that document, even though I go to a Reformed Baptist church, and they would would mostly hold to that. Um, I wrote a catechism called Catechids. Now, that's aimed at like little kids, but it can be a good place to start. Um, I've actually given one of those to a, a new Christian, new Protestant Christian who wanted to get into Christian theology, catechids. You can find that on my website, thethink.institute slash catechids, C-A-T-A-K-I-D-S. You can get a free PDF of it on my website if you're, if you're interested. But I would say that those are probably three good places to start. Awesome. Hey, thank you so much. Those are all real good answers. Yeah. Um, he asked me, in, actually, and I sent him another J.I. Packer book. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, Knowing God. But that's like just one of my favorites. I think everybody should read that book. You know, um, I've actually never read Knowing God. I say that to my shame. Really? Yeah. Man, I've read it like five or six times. Have you really? I highly recommend it. Okay. Okay. Well, I need to add that yeah. to my list. You know, it's, it's a super easy read. Anyways, but um, cool. so I'll go ahead and invite Autumn up. He's got a question. Hello, can, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, loud and clear. All right. Um, so I believe that I've spoken with you in the past before. I'm not really sure what my question was in the past, but um, today one of my questions is, uh, recently I've been thinking about how men and women should be in relationship with one another and, you know, the sense of biblical or Christian um, beliefs in a certain way. So one thing that I do want to bring up is um, one thing that I learned recently is that when marriage was first created by the Catholic Church, it wasn't a means of, you know, bringing two people that are in love together and bringing them in together with God as well. Hmm. That that seems more of a more uh, modern Protestant view of how marriage should be or even a Baptist way, but... Uh, one thing I do want to point out is that uh, a lot of time, a lot of messages that are in the biblical text use the word wife or husband in you know certain moral aspects of you know uh, different relationships that men and women have together. Uh, it it goes into moral. Uh, I mean, sexual morality and yeah. then, like what autumn. I'm, I'm sorry to cut to the chase here, but if you don't mind, what, what's the question? Uh, sorry. Uh, That's so okay. I mean, what I, what I really mean is how should men and women conduct themselves in relationship with one another in modern day? Hmm. Not, not, not so much like in your personal view, because I know that's like kind of, uh, infinitely, you know, complex, complex, but mm. I mean more so like how does the biblical text or how does Jesus 
want us to conduct ourselves around women or how do how does he want women to conduct themselves around men because i feel like that there is like a uh, discompressancy that i can't speak today um, with uh you know each other okay um how do you i guess i'm I'm having a little trouble understanding. Are you just saying just sort of in general, how should men and women act towards each other? Not not specifically. I mean more like in romantic relationships. Oh, got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right. Uh, let me see if I can pull up some scripture here. Let's see. Uh, one, one verse that comes to my mind is Genesis 2-7. Okay. Um, okay. Hold on. Uh, why, while I'm pulling this up, why does that come to your mind? Uh, so before I, I give my context for it, Genesis 2-7 is God forming the man, dust from the ground, and then um, he breathed the life into Adam, and he also took the, his rib and created Eve. Yeah. Which is, it, it, to me, it, it's more of, uh, it's a reflection of how men's and women's relationships are created to be women are a partner for men yeah in this world where um men should not be alone that's kind of the gist oh of it. Men yeah should not be alone yes okay women should not like rely on men but they are i don't know how to say this in a okay unsexist manner <laughs> It's like, yeah, I I get it to portray this idea without, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're stepping into a minefield, Autumn. I mean, this is in today's world. You can't even talk about this stuff. Right now, there is some feminist somewhere whose ears just perked up and is is logging in right now to Discord to call us all to call us all misogynists for even talking about this. Okay, listen, listen. Okay. You, you're, you're spot on in that you're going to scripture. You're going to Genesis 2 7. I think that's good. Okay, why? Because it's not good for the man to be alone. Right there, we have a we have a depiction, a, a bold statement by God, clear statement that men need help. Look, men, guys like you and me, Autumn, we need help. Okay, I'm so glad. I don't, are you a married man or single man? I am newly wed. Newly wed. Hey, congratulations, man. That's awesome. Thank you. He Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And I, I like the joke with my wife. Um, I don't recommend this, but I always say, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, but you're still a thing. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and I've got thank thank God I've got a wife who's got an excellent sense of humor. And and she knows she knows that if she ever left me, I would probably die within a week. So she understands how much how much I love her, how much I need her. Um, but look, guys like you and me, we need help. Okay, so um, the relationship between a man and woman. Now, first of all, I would caution you. I don't know where this is coming from, but if you are thinking of uh, just men and women general, and you did specify romantic relationships, but um, the. Uh, when it comes to, you know, say, uh, older women, you know, the Bible says, um, we should treat them like mothers. You know, we should, uh, for, for older women, um, we need to, um, this is first Timothy chapter five, verse two says, um, don't, well, and chapter, chapter five, verse one says this, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, Older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters. And then what he says next is great with all purity. 
Why does he say that? Because, as we all know, he's writing to a pastor. Pastors don't always treat the younger women in their congregations with purity. And, and men in general do not always treat women with purity. We need to be men of purity. And when we're dealing with women who are not our wives, we need to keep them at arm's length. We need to be pure, totally, no, nothing, anything that could even be construed as sexually inappropriate, relationally inappropriate, needs to be far, far, far from us. Don't even go down that road. Read Proverbs every day and you will see the warnings against going towards the forbidden woman in any way, shape, or form. So I want to set the, right. So I want to set the scene there. Now, in terms of within the relationship, the, um, I love how you went to Genesis 2 because, yes, the man needs help. And feminists love to point out that the woman is called an easer, an azer, which is uh, a helper, and that and and that God Himself is also called a helper. Okay, so far so good. Man needs help. God's a helper. Um, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that the woman is analogous to God in the sense of how she is with the man in relationship? No, because we have a lot of texts in there uh, in Scripture that explain the relationship between the man and the woman, and at no point. Is the woman ever called the Lord of the man, the master of the man, anything like that? The, the, uh, real quick, the, the wife is to submit to her husband according to, uh, Ephesians chapter five. And people say, well, yeah, but there's supposed to be mutual submission. No, that's not what the text is getting at. Um, we are to submit to one another out of Christ, uh, out of uh, obedience to Christ, yes. But the way we do this is in the context of a marriage, the husband is the head, the wife is the body. So the, 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 the man is the head of the woman. The, what does that mean? Does that mean we lord it over her? Does that mean that we, we oppress and abuse her? Um, no, that would be foolish because Paul even says in Ephesians 5, he says, no man ever hated his own body, but nourishes it, cherishes it. We care for our bodies. Uh, you know, like me, I mean, it's been a little too long since I've been back in the gym, but I, I like to eat somewhat healthy. I mean, you know, I take, I eat protein supplements. I go to the gym. I try to, I try to take care of my body. Why? Because I'd be a stupid idiot not to because I want to, I want my body to be in good working condition. How much more so should I care for my wife who is the flesh of my flesh, the bone of my bone, the, she is my body. She is more precious to me than my own body because she is my sister in Christ and she is made in the image of God and God has given her to me to help me. Um, yes. I, I do want to, um, not interject. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. One thing I do want to point out is, uh, well, one, first of all, I'm not, I'm not coming through this with like the guise of trying to cheat on my wife, first of all. Well, that's good. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to get that misconstrued. Yeah. My, my best friend's having some lady problems, so I'm trying to be okay. the, the Christian guys for him. Yeah. Uh, secondly, one, one thing I did want to question on was how do we, what, what could we define as a wife? Mm. And I, I find that weird to ask you because, mm. Uh, a lot of people they go under the the guise that a wife is somebody that you marry under the Catholic ceremony sure. of which you you know become one with God essentially. Yeah. But um, one thing I do want to point out is that uh, marriage wasn't solely. Uh, it didn't start out as like a 
matrimony between a man and wife who love each other. It was actually just, um, it was a political, a, what was it again? It was a political, um, Autumn, can I, can I interrupt you right there? For two families to get together. Yes. Uh, for political games and stuff like that. that. The reason why I bring that up is because a lot of the, a lot of, uh, troubles that were happening in the 12th century was around the same time, uh, that we were, ex- that they would have been experiencing the crusades and stuff like that. Okay. Re- in the Middle Ages. And so, real quick. Autumn, yeah. Let me- yeah. Let's head, let's, let's head back to the trail. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Right. Yeah. Thanks, Ellipsis. All right. So listen, um, marriage was not invented by the, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, marriage has gone through many different iterations over the years, um, but it was invented by God. And the very first marriage is in Genesis chapter two, the very first one, the very first, uh, the chapter that you mentioned earlier. Um, in Genesis two, 21 through 25, we have the very first marriage. God caused the man to go to sleep, made the woman out of his rib, out of his side, woke up the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman because she was taken from man. So this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. Look at, there's a ceremony. Okay. The, the groom even gives a speech, you know, um, there's an officiant. God is the officiant. God brings the, the, um, uh, the woman to the man. Um, so there is matrimony. There's an officiant. There is a, um, a, a vow of sorts. And then there's a statement that this is normative and descriptive for the rest of human history. Verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and mother. Well, it's like, wait a minute. Well, there was no father and mother here. What are you talking about? No, this it's because this is setting the pattern for the rest of human history. Because everyone else is going to have father and mother. The I'm speaking of is the marriage that was created by humanity and the one that you and I recognize as marriage. Well, what I'm saying, okay, what I'm, what I'm saying is, um, we, we are right to ceremonialize marriage because we have a, a marriage ceremony in Genesis. So for what, whatever else, look, if, if two people want to just go to their pastor and say, Hey, you know, we want to be married. Um, can you marry us? That fine. Okay. That you count it as a marriage, but just make sure you, but you act like it's a marriage. Uh, be faithful to your wife. All the requirements that husbands have to their wives in scripture now apply to you. So where we run into trouble is when we start to redefine marriage or take marriage lightly in any way, shape or form. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense, but, um, I have one more question before uh, I get. Uh, we better move on, Autumn. I'm sorry. Man, yeah, we got to move on. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. All right. All right. No worries. I'm sorry. Thanks, dude. Thanks, man. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Ellipsis. Yeah. For having me on. No worries. Thanks, Autumn. I think I can do one more ellipsis. Just one more. Oh man. Okay. That would be a good one. Okay. Um, well, maybe, maybe, maybe two. If I can get it quick. Okay, no. These are taking a long time tonight. So we'll take uh, from the side here. Promote me up, mods. Uh, Zapper has been waiting quite a while. There's Zapper, why don't you come on up? Zapper, come, you're invited. Going once. Oh, you're here. Ask your question quick. Come on, man. 
Zapper. Welcome. You're muted or something. Uh, oh, oh, you are muted. He is muted, actually. Oh. What the heck? Hold on a second. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> Come back up, Zapper. You should be able to talk now. Hello, Zapper. I better not regret this. What's your question? How did Uh, Jesus walk on water? How did Jesus walk on water? Well, yeah. Um, Thank you for your question. The nice... Was it ice? Oh, <laughs> no, it wasn't ice. We, yeah, no, it wasn't ice. Very funny. Oh, come on. Next question. It wasn't ice. Okay, let's go. Jesus uh, is Lord. He can do that. Yeah, boat has been waiting quite a while. We're going to boat up. <laughs> was it ice? Yeah, Jesus was not Elsa. He, he couldn't just form ice. I mean, he could. Sure, he could. Whoa. He didn't. Hello, who's this? This is me, Boats. Hi, Boats. I just have a couple genuine questions. I'm not trying to be rude here when I ask this. Oh, usually when people say that, they're about to be rude. Just kidding. Go ahead. Do you think that the Bible could be interpreted interpreted in many different ways? Like how many different ways? Um, as many ways as I can interpret your words. I mean, yeah, sure. Well, rightfully, no. There's only one proper way to interpret each text. But people can and do wrongly interpret it many different ways, just like I could wrongly interpret every word that you're about to tell me. Okay. So, uh, the King James Version, I assume that's what KJV is, it changed the word prostitution in, I don't remember which Bible verse, but it changed it to sodomite. Uh, it's backed by zero contemporary scholarly basis. Hmm. What do you think about that? You're going to have to be a lot more specific than that boat. All right, let me pull this up. Yeah, what's the verse again? One more time. Uh, I believe it's 23, 17 to 18. What, what, Burke? What, what, yeah, the Bible's broken up into 66 different books, so there's... Mm-hmm. What's that? The... Dude, I don't know Deuteronomy. How to say this. Oh, okay. Yeah. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy twenty two. Twenty three seventeen. Twenty three seventeen. Twenty three seventeen. Okay. In the King James version, it was changed the word. Okay. Um, so what it says is now. Um, let me let me see if I can pull up a. Uh, a a parallel here uh just because i want to make sure we're looking at the right one the bible has been translated into many into english many times and so um as a result we have to sometimes we have to compare different versions and, and get different readings um now why just as i'm pulling this up why do you bring up the king james okay so this version it, it's often quoted to justify homophobia because it says sodomy, oh. which obviously that's a very common thing among gay people. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, it is. Um, 
Yeah, I know when you say homophobia, I just want to say right off the, the bat, people use that term a lot. Uh, it's actually a pejorative term. I reject it. I don't use it. And I don't, I don't, uh, I reject it when people use it about me. And the reason why is because a phobia is an irrational fear. And so using the word homophobia is actually a manipulation te- technique. And I'm not saying that you're doing this boat. Maybe you just mean it as shorthand for disapproving of homosexuality, in which case. Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay. So you probably want to find a different word to use because a phobia is a, is a psychosis. It's a, it's a, it's a actually, um, an irrational fear and, um, and disapproving of, of homosexual, you know, uh, intercourse. It's not necessarily rooted to say that the only explanation must be an irrational fear of phobia is a very bigoted point of view. So, um, again, okay. not call- the colloquial term. So I use the I totally get it. I'm just telling you why why you might want to rethink that. Um, Okay, so in the King James, it says, There shall be no whore of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite in the sons of Israel. Okay. Uh, The Christian Standard Bible, which is a more modern translation, says, No Israelite woman is to be a cult prostitute, and no Israelite man is to be a cult prostitute. All right, so uh, the idea there, and this is probably what the translators of the King James Bible were getting at, is a male cult prostitute would be someone who would engage in homosexual uh, sex with... Um, why? Wh- why what? Why did they do that? Or Why would that be what it means? Well, prosti- you, I mean, you know what a prostitute is. Male prostitution doesn't mean homosexuality. No, it doesn't. Right. And so that's why in the modern translation, it just, it simply says cult prostitute, a male cult prostitute. Statistically speaking, men have a, have greater sex drive. So probably what's going on there is, um, and I don't know the historical study there, but I do know that, um, the, that when it comes to like even today, um, you know, male prostitution, male prostitutes, are more likely to serve men than they are to serve women. Men just have greater sex drives, you know. So, um, so you're gonna you're gonna get that. That's that's statistically true, but I don't think that was true when the Bible was written. Oh, that men have greater sex drives? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that's been true throughout humanity. I don't oh, think that men had greater sex drives towards. Them. I don't think. No, I don't think that. Well, well listen. There's a reason why why it's prohibited, and so to the extent that people obey God, yeah, our our drives are going to be more in line with God's will. Um, but just zooming out again, um, you're you're right about this point, boat. And I don't know if this is a personal issue for you, um, but the the King James translation is well. Again, I'm not looking at the Hebrew here, so if I were to look at the Hebrew, maybe I, maybe I need to actually. But um, let me let me go ahead and pull that up. But um, it's not like sometimes people have this misconception that the Bible has like one verse that talks about something, and everybody's hinging, you know. Are all of our doctrines on a single verse? That's a very dangerous way to interpret scripture and to come up with doctrines. Um, I can tell you that the biblical prohibition of homosexuality is not limited to a mistranslation of Deuteronomy 23, 17. And, and, and even if, even if it were, Deuteronomy 27, 23, 17 is, is in the old covenant scriptures. It was a law for Israel, theocratic Israel at that particular time. So one thing that people will say, I'm actually going to make your case a little stronger for you, but, um, one thing people will say is, well, if you condemn homosexuality, then you can't wear mixed fabrics 
and you can't eat shellfish because those things are also condemned by the Old Testament law. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's correct. And this is why as a Christian, I do not go to Deuteronomy first in order to find out, you know, which activities are normative and which ones are holy and which ones please God. So instead, what do I do? I go to the law of Christ. I go to the New Testament. In the New Testament, I find Jesus mandating what marriage is, what is appropriate for sexuality, um, what is appropriate for, um, <clears throat> you know, for that kind of relationship. And then I see the apostle Paul doing the same thing in first Corinthians. And, and so the, then I can go back to Deuteronomy and I can say, okay, now what is going on here? Um, because the issue in Deuteronomy is in many ways, it's the same issue. It's, it is describing normative sexuality, but it's actually going deeper than that. Because in Deuteronomy, it's talking not just about sexuality, but about worship. See, all, all sexuality, just like everything we do, boat, is rooted in worship because we are, we are beings that are created to worship. Whoever is on the throne of your life is the one that you worship. And so if God is on the throne of your life, your sexuality is going to reflect that. If God is not on the throne of your life, your sexuality is going to reflect that as well. If you're self... So really quick, yeah. why do you need to use that to uh, condemn uh, like gay people if it doesn't affect you? Oh, now that's a whole different objection. I First of all, I don't think you've heard me condemn gay, gay people or, or anything else. I'm just trying to tell I'm you what... sorry, I assumed you did. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. That's why you shouldn't assume. Um, I don't condemn anyone. Now, does that mean that I believe that homosexuality is holy according to the Bible? No, of course not. Um, but what I, what I don't do is I try not to, you know, give my own opinion because my opinion counts for jack squat. God's word is what's really important. So I'm trying to appeal to scripture. So boat, you, you might look at the teaching of Jesus that, you know, Jesus talks about marriage as being a man and a woman. You might say, well, I, I disagree with you, Jesus. Well, you have to understand who Jesus is. You can disagree with him all you want, but if Jesus is who he said that he was, if he is the son of God, then you're the one that needs to get in line with him. He does not need to get in line with you. Now, the, that, the bad news is that that means you're going to need to give up certain things in your life that you love, that, that you are currently seeking right now to fulfill you. The good news is Jesus promises that anything harmful, anything sin, sinful that he asks you to give up, he is going to make you whole and he is going to be more to you and more satisfying to you than whatever it is you're giving up. Jesus says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and that all who are weary and heavy laden should come to him. So if if Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, then you were created for a purpose that transcends your sexuality, that transcends whatever urges or desires that you feel. And what you need to be concerned about, if I can say this respectfully, Boat, because I don't know you, but what you need to be concerned with is less about what Christians think of you and your behavior and more about what God thinks about you. And the Bible says that you are created in his image that God loves humanity and sent his son. And I believe that even me talking to you right now about the love of God, about the grace of God, and even, yes, about the judgment of God, is God holding out a hand to you, an invitation to you to say, 
Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. He died to forgive you of your sins. Receive him as Savior and Lord and trust him to work out in your life all those things that you need to give up in order to be obedient to him. So your issue is not with me or with other Christians. It is with God. And I want to urge you, Boat, be reconciled to God through his son, Jesus. Okay. Um, one last thing. Uh, so, uh, well, we got to move on okay. to the next question. Sorry. Bo. Thanks, Boat. <clears throat> do, do, you have a, do you have time for another question, Joe? I could do one more. Okay. So we're welcoming the Jew of Wall Street up to chat because he has some uh, questions for you. Okay. Come on up. You're unmuted, buddy. Uh, your thing's lighting up. We can't hear you. Dude. Uh, the Jew of Wall Street. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Got you now. Yeah. There we go. Okay. Um, hi, Joel. Hi. Uh, appreciate you doing this. Uh, appreciate taking the questions. Um, My pleasure. I was raised, I was raised Orthodox Jewish. Okay. So I have, uh, a couple questions just from trying to reconcile my perspective with your perspective. Okay. You said you were going to look at the Hebrew. Can you read and, and speak Hebrew? No, I cannot. I rely on software for that. I can read uh, Koine Greek, and but I, I cannot read Hebrew. Okay. Not without help. Now, so I'm just trying to reconcile the, the things you're saying from the Old Testament with mm. what I learned from the Old Testament. Right? Okay, and, okay. Uh, the things that I learned are very different to what you were saying. I bet. Specifically, like, in terms of marriage, right? Uh, mar- the marriage is, is, is very pivotal in, in the Old Testament. Um, and the, the woman is not property. Correct. And, and the, the specific portions of the contract that is marriage are, are, are laid out. And in fact, it's, it is okay for a man to take multiple uh, wives, but not the other way around. But interestingly enough, one of the contract requirements for marriage is that, um, is that the right of sexual intercourse is to the woman. So where, I guess my, my, my main question is, where do you reconcile the differences between what the Jewish explanation and the Jewish Mishnah and commentary is mm-hmm. on the Torah and how, and, and what you have, uh, the, the, I guess the Christian perspective on the Old Testament? Okay, so, uh, thanks for your question. Really quickly, did you hear me say that the woman is the man's property? I, I came in a, a bit on the tail end of that part, so I'm not entirely specifically sure. Okay, let me be entirely specifically clear. I did not say that, nor would I ever. That's, uh, that's, I don't know what religion that would be, but that would not be Christianity. So just, I want to just clarify that right now because I don't want someone to get the wrong idea. Whoa, Joel thinks that women are their husband's property? No, 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 no. Uh, actually, Christianity elevates the status of, of women far above, um, any other religion or, uh, or worldview or philosophy out there. Um, but, uh, but including radical feminism, I would say. But, um, okay. So how do I reconcile the differences? Um, I, I guess I need to be specific. Uh, where, you know, where do you see those differences being unreconciled? You know, uh, I guess from, from, from what you just said to, uh, both about 
accepting accepting the terms to be obedient to Christ. Yes, and a lot of it being a lot of the the um, basis of finding the to being as close to God is being through the the opinions and the scripture of Christ and and accepting Him and the, in, in my faith. Whereas mm-hmm. the the Jewish scripture is very 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 much focused on day to day. Uh, technical things that make us closer to God. Okay. Um, so let's see. Well, you know, as a Christian, I'm very concerned with those things as well. The, the question is, you know, what is our status with God? So as a Jewish person, do you still consider yourself to be Orthodox? No, I, I've, I've since moved away from uh, the Orthodoxy. So what do you believe about your status with God. Are you, are you, do you consider yourself to be a sinner? Well, uh, my opinion of God is a bit different than most, uh, uh, people. I think the idea that God is, um, ex- ex- that God exists as a driving force outside of the rules and shrine within the Torah is a Christian value. I don't think the fundamentals of the Torah show God to be an omnipotent or omniscient essence. So, um, so do you believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth? I don't believe that God. So, my belief is that the the, the rules, the traditions, the laws and customs enshrined within the Torah, because. No matter where you go in the world, no matter who it is, those are the foundations of a functioning and, and well-off society. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself is God and the clo- and the entire point Ooh. of the Torah of trying to get as close to God as possible is to get to the idea of, in Hebrew, it's tikkun olam, making the world yeah. as close to the Garden of Eden as possible, the earth as close to the Garden of Eden as possible. All right. So so you view God as more of an archetypical aspiration. Uh, God is something that we, more of um, an ideal state rather than a, a personal divine creator who's almighty. Is that fair? Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I'd say yes. Okay, so so here's um speaking frankly, you don't agree with Jewish traditional Jewish interpretation yourself. And I think you alluded to that. You said you're not orthodox anymore. Um so, you know, your question was how do I reconcile my understanding, my Christian understanding with Jewish understanding? Um you you would need to ask yourself the same question. I know you're not the one doing the AMA, so that's something for you to think about. But um Christian theology is very much in line with um, Old Testament era, uh, pre-Christian era, and Second Temple Judaism thought, Judaic thought. Um, in that, you know, we believe that the, the scriptures speak about God as as if God is, you know, the creator, the the um, the one who rules heaven and earth. Genesis 1-1 says that in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then you compare that with John 1-1 in the New Testament. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It talks about creation. It's a, re, it's a retelling of Genesis 1-1 talking about God as the creator. Um, the Old Testament says, in Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And then you go to the New Testament in Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, so uh, either you go to um, Habakkuk 
one of your prophets in the Old Testament, or one of my prophets, I don't know if you believe in him or not, but uh, he says, um, God says, my righteous one will live by faith. And then you fast forward to Romans chapter one, verse 16, and it says, for the righteous shall live by faith. You go back to Genesis and it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then you go back into the, again, to the book of Romans and it talks about how still today when we have faith, we are justified by faith. God credits righteousness to us when we have faith. So Christian theology is very much in line with Old Testament teachings. I mean, you want to, you want to see a, a, an exact parallel. Go to Isaiah chapter 53. I don't know if that's a passage you've ever studied before. Have you ever studied Isaiah chapter 53? Uh, it might be, is Isaiah one of, I'm assuming that would be a, a, a prophet, a person. Correct. Yep. That's right. Then yes, I think it might just be the Hebrew name might just be slightly different. Oh, that, that could be. One of the things that I know is that the, um, that particular chapter is not read in the synagogues, to my knowledge. So you may not, if you, even if you grew up Orthodox. Well, I mean, so, so yeah, I mean, you have, you have the Torah and, um, the only thing read in the synagogue is the Sidor, the prayer book and the Torah scrolls themselves, the five books of Moses. There isn't really, and occasionally, um, two other small things for very specific holidays, but mm. not much else is usually specifically read. Okay. Um, Okay. Well, then what I would encourage you to do is, um, and I, I realize that you, your faith has changed. Your convictions have changed since you were young. And that's, you know, that's a very normal thing. Um, what I would encourage you to do is I would really ask you to look at the Old Testament, look at what the prophets say, because I, even Moses, I mean, even if you believe in the Torah, um, you know, Moses prophesied of a prophet who would come, who would be like Moses, who would be from, you know, from the Israelite people, from their brothers, and and that you have to listen yeah, to everything that he said. There's a group of there's a group of Orthodox Jews in Israel who believe the Messiah has already come. Yes, that who the Lubavitchers or who? Yes. Yeah. Lubavitch. Yes. Um, yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, uh, you know, Lubavitch didn't, didn't meet the requirements. Uh, he came way after the temple had already been destroyed. Daniel said that he would come before the temple is destroyed. So there's, you know, they're, they're grasping at straws there, respectfully. Um, but Jesus actually did come before the temple was destroyed. So what I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you to really read the prophetic witness, read Isaiah, read Daniel, especially Daniel chapter seven, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter nine, Isaiah chapter 11. I would go back and I would read Hosea, where it says on the third day they will revive us. Then you look, when did Jesus rise again? Go back and look at Genesis where um, Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his son and it said he saw the mountain, he saw the place on the third day, you know, and that same mountain was the was the uh, the temple mount, you know, very close to where Jesus was sacrificed. Um, so, you know, look at the prophetic witness and even, uh, even Passover, you probably grew up celebrating Passover, right? Of course. Yeah. So very well. Yeah, yeah. And so I've I've celebrated Passover many times myself. My in-laws are all Jewish. Um they're they're Messianic Jewish. And um so I've celebrated Passover. I've done a Seder many, many times. And um it's really fascinating to see how the Seder, even the matzah, you know, the matzah is striped, it's pierced. Uh when you go and hide the afikomen, which I mean, you probably did as you, when you were a kid. Oh yes. You know, you, you don't hide the top one, you don't hide the middle one, you hide the uh the, or sorry, you don't hide the top or the bottom, you hide the middle one. Right. So that, what does that point towards? You know, the father, not the father, not the spirit, but the son, the second person of the Trinity. So it's like the, um, the, the, the traditions that you grew up celebrating all point toward your Messiah. Jesus is that Messiah. So go ahead. 
I wouldn't say I wouldn't say Hanukkah does. Oh, are you kidding me? Jesus, when Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world, it was during the feast of dedication. It was while well, he was surrounded by the lights of the menorah. Absolutely. Yeah, but the, yeah, but the menorah was was Jesus. I don't know. I don't know to be honest. Was Jesus before or after the the, the uh, after against the Romans? Yeah, he was. After. He was after. Right. So yeah. because the menorah, the menorah was a common thing. Like that was the whole point. Correct. You know? um, right. So because when they when the when they beat beat back the Romans, they wanted to light the menorah. Rose the Greeks, day. but yeah, uh, Greeks. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um. And yeah, the miracle of the oil, etc. But it's yeah. Hanukkah. The holiday is more of a military celebration. Correct, correct. You're right. And Jesus used it as a as an illustration to talk about himself. Hanukkah is, uh, as you may know, it comes from the intertestamental period. It was after there had the prophetic witness had stopped. Malachi was the last prophet. For 400 years, there was silence from God. There were there was no prophet. Hanukkah took place. During that, um, during that, uh, that period. So by the time Jesus is born, Hanukkah has already happened, but Hanukkah was not one of the prescribed, um, festivals. However, Jesus did use it as an illustration to talk about himself. So it's not going to apply in the same way that like Passover does, but it is going to, um, you know, when you think about light, light entering the world, uh, when you think about the miracle of the oil and we think about how Jesus is the anointed one. You know, so David was anointed with oil. Jesus is anointed, and yeah, they aren't. They aren't. They weren't anointed with burning oil. No, no, no. Right, of course. And like I said, it's not going to be a one-to-one parallel. But the idea, uh, there's a strong correlation between the anointing oil, and I know that's not the same. It's lamp oil, but it's still olive oil. The the anointing oil in the Old Testament. My understanding is that it symbolized the get the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit during his baptism. You can read about that in, I want to say, Mark chapter 1 or 2 in the New Testament. So there's a lot of parallels there. So when you say, how do I reconcile them? Or um, I, I, I don't reconcile them. I read the whole thing as one story, and it culminates in Jesus. And there's a great preacher whose name is Charles Spurgeon. Somebody once asked him how he reconciled two different difficult texts. And he says, I have no need to reconcile friends. And so... That's how I view the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're friends. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The New Testament points backward toward Jesus, if you will, or towards Jesus. And then my life as a Christian, I, I point back to Jesus as well. And I just want to say, Jew of Wall Street, um, as a Gentile, I've got some Jewish blood in me. I had an ancestor who, who was Jewish going back you know, five, six generations. Um, but as, as a Gentile, I've got your Messiah what am I doing with your Messiah and your scriptures well, and I your mean, prophets? I mean, Jesus doesn't actually fit the exact criteria. One hundred percent, he does fit, and I don't have time to get into it now. But if you go to my website, um, thethink.institute, or I would just say, you know, search, do a do a search on DuckDuckGo or Google, and uh, do a search for all the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. He met the prophecies to a T, even ruling the world, even giving peace to the world. Because you look right now, and nations that used to be at war with one another are at peace with one another because of Christ, because of Jesus. So he he did actually fit the the T. And I know I'm just I'm saying that I'm not proving it, but that's because we're out of time. I, I mostly mean I mostly mean that especially since he was not um, a descendant of King David. Oh, you need to read you need to read um, Matthew chapter one. Yes, he was. Read what? Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Jesus was a direct descendant of, of David. He's in the royal line. On his mother's and his father's father's side. Uh, who was his father? Joseph. Well, his adopted father. 
God is his father. J- Joseph was his adopted father. But um, but yeah, he's he's in the royal line. I, don't don't take my word for it. Go back and read. I let 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 uh, the record speak for itself. Go back and read. You can read the genealogy all the way from. I mean, you can get it from Adam. You can get it from Abraham. You can get it from David all the way down. Read read Matthew chapter one. I have not read much New Testament stuff. I think that's, respectfully, I think that's where you're lacking. I think you need to read the New Testament. At least then you'll see where I'm coming from. Yeah, man, I always say if you're, if you're, if you're New Testament, uh, you know, uh, interested, just, you know, just flip open a couple pages. Yeah. You can get it on any corner. Yeah. I mean, I can still get online if I'm going to read it. Yeah. Start with. Start with Matthew, please, because I do not want you to miss this. Because this is a, this is literally a matter of life and death. And I've really enjoyed talking with you. I, I I really enjoy this. I love talking about the Messiah and the old the Old Testament scriptures. I really want to just urge you, please consider it a personal favor to your your new Christian friend. Go read Matthew chapter one and just start reading and um and look at the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. You will be amazed. Especially as someone who grew up Orthodox, you're, I don't, you're not going to miss it. You can't miss it. I know you didn't read the prophets, but please go read Matthew chapter one. I will sure to give it a look. Okay. Put the, uh, the candor. Thank you. All right. Hey, thank you so much. Hey, Joel, I, I get, I'm feeling like you're, it's time for you to go. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, as always, I, I leave these things more energized than when I start because it's just, I, I enjoy the conversation, but, awesome. but yeah, it's time. Uh, you, have that effect on you yes right, hey uh for those still listening thank you so much for uh hanging out check out joel because links on the announcement page check out his youtube page uh check out his website he's got a lot of re- great resources there yes and the podcast the think podcast sorry to sorry to do the plug but the think podcast with joel said case if you search for the think institute or the think podcast on your favorite podcast catcher app you should find it in there i've got a a a bunch of uh new episodes coming and then on youtube i've got a ton of of episodes from previous ama's ellipsis so previous ones that we've done they're all going to be coming out over the next week and um so little little clips you know five to ten minute clips excellent you guys are going to be famous all right hey Thanks again, Joel. Thank you, Ellipsis. Always a pleasure. God bless. Bye. Okay, that about wraps it up for this episode. The Think Podcast is a production of The Think Institute and is produced by yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. The Think Institute operates under Church Movements, a ministry of Crew under the division of Crew City. To learn about how to support The Think Institute and my family tax-free, go to thethink.institute slash partner. I hope you heard something helpful today. I know I did. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a short stop on the journey as we learn to lead our families in defending the Christian message. And we'll see you next time. Until then, I hope it made you think. (music) 